Before we come to um, the message from God's Word, let us let us ask God for His blessing on this. Father, Your Word is truth. Lord, you have told us to be sanctified by that truth. So, Lord, use your word to sanctify us, to build us up, Lord, in our faith, to strengthen us in our faith. Father, we are weak. Uh, We are weak vessels. But, Lord, you are great and mighty. Your spirit is all-powerful. Empower us, Lord, to hear your word, to receive your word with joy, with gladness. Father, with a recognition of who you are and your recognition of our position now in Christ, that we are adopted sons and daughters, that we, Father, have all the benefits of your covenant because they have been fulfilled, that all the covenant stipulations have been fulfilled on our behalf by your Son. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he came. Thank you, Lord, for that word, he is the word from everlasting. We pray, Lord, that you would use that word now to instruct your people, edify your people, build us up in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The text for this morning is Isaiah chapter 59. So this is kind of a first for me, not that I get a whole lot of opportunity to do this, but I've... <clears throat> First time I'm in the Old Testament, and first time I'm doing a whole chapter. So <laughs> this may be a little, uh, little aggressive, um, trying to do the whole chapter, but I think it, it has to be done as a whole. So we'll give it a shot. If uh, if the casseroles burn, sorry, <laughs> sorry, folks. <laughs> All right, chapter, Isaiah chapter 59. <clears throat> Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. 
For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. As, as Carl Truman says, the Americans have to have a title for their sermon. So seeing that I have to have a title for the sermon, the title for the sermon is The Path of Peace. The Path of Peace. And I'm going to do uh, the classic three-point outline here. So the first point, the first point concerning our path of peace is the prerequisite for peace. The prerequisite for peace. The second point is going to be the pursuit of peace. The pursuit of peace. And the last point is going to be the permanent peace. A permanent peace. All right, so we have the pre prerequisite for peace, which is going to come from verses 1 through 7. The pursuit of peace, which is going to come from verses 8 through 15a. And then the permanent peace from verses 15b to 21. Okay, so prerequisite for, for peace, pursuit of peace, and a permanent peace. All right. Children, what is a prerequisite? <laughs> you don't know yet. Wait till you get to school. When you get to high school or college, you'll know what a prerequisite is. A prerequisite is something that has to happen before something else can happen. So in the classic school case, you have to take calculus one before you can take calculus two. Unless you're really, really smart, then you could probably just skip calculus one and go straight. But for the most part, if you try to sign up for calculus two and your guidance counselor sees that you have not taken calculus one, they're going to say, no, you can't. You can't take calculus two because the prerequisite for the calculus two is calculus one. So a prerequisite is something that has to happen before something else can happen. So what is the prerequisite for peace? And we're going to break this down into a few subpoints. The prerequisite for peace is going to be broken down into uh, in the context of war. All right. So verse one, behold, 
The Lord, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So we have a problem. We have a problem. The Lord is not the problem, but we do have a problem. The problem is our iniquities have made a separation between us and God. To put it plainly, we are at war with God. So the prerequisite for peace is war. You've got to have war before you can have peace, right? So the prerequisite for, war, for peace is war. Who is, in any given conflict, any given war, there's an instigator, right? The one who, who starts it. You know, you get into a fight with your sibling. You know, you're the, you, you may be the one who starts it. You're the instigator. Well, who is the instigator in this war? Verse 1 says, it is not God. God is not the instigator. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. God hasn't changed. God is immutable. That means God doesn't change. He's immutable. His hand is not shortened. God God all of a sudden can't save. God always has been able to save. He always will be able to save. It's not his fault. Okay? His arm is not shortened. Or his ear, he hasn't become deaf. God hasn't become hard of hearing in his old age. He can still hear. It's not his problem. The problem, the instigator, then, is us. Right? So God's not the instigator. God is immutable. It shows the extent of God's power and the efficacy of God's power. The extent and efficacy of God's power. God's arm is long enough to save. His ear can hear well enough to hear and to act. So God has power and the efficacy to, to, to save and to hear. Man's sin and his rebellion are the instigator. Matthew Henry puts it this way. It is not because God is weary of hearing prayer, but because we are weary of praying. So God's, not, God's ear isn't, isn't weary because he's weary of hearing our prayer. It's because we are weary in praying to him. That's the problem. That's one of the problems. One of the ways that we are at war with God. Verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Okay, so again, the problem is not God. The problem that God does not hear is because of this separation between us and God. That word separation, it's the same word that's used in Genesis, in the first chapter of Genesis. Let me read you from Genesis chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And so it was. And God called the expanse heaven. All right. So this separation, this separation spoken of in verse 2, it's the same concept of the creation distinction between light and dark. 
between heaven, the firmament above, and earth, the firmament belief. It's that kind of separation, that intense, uh, the extent of that kind of separation. One other, one other use of that same verb, that same word, is in Exodus chapter 26, verse 33. Exodus 23, I'm sorry, Exodus 26, verse 33. God giving Moses instructions. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. All right, so the same concept of separation, not only between light and darkness in creation, heaven and earth in creation, but also within the temple with, between the unholy and the holy. Same separation. That's what's separating us from God because of our sin. It's like a, we're going to talk about this in, in, in a little bit, but it's like this huge wall that just cannot be penetrated through and not only does it prevent God from hearing us, you know, we're, we're down here yelling and screaming and shouting for God to hear, but because of our sin, God isn't going to hear. It also prevents God's mercies from coming down to us because of that separation, because of the forcefulness of that separation, that same separation that God used in creating the heavens and the earth. And the waters and the dry land, that same separation is what keeps us from God. So we have a problem. We have an impenetrable barrier between us and God. So that's the battle line. That's the battle line, that separation, that barrier between God and us. So we have the instigator, who's us. We have that barrier between us and God. What are the effects of this? Verses 3 through 7. This talks about the effect of our sin and our separation from God. Verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one gives, goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. All right, so that's a pretty <laughs> comprehensive list of what it's like to be separated from God. The futility the effect of that on us in our sin. Our hands are continually filed with blood, iniquity. Our lips continually speak lies and speak wickedness. We don't do justice. We are, there, there's injustice in the land. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. Um, no one speaks the truth. They conceive mischief. Uh, they hatch adder's eggs. Um, their feet run to evil, swift to shed innocent blood. So basically, um, going through the going through the minor prophets in Sunday school, we, we we've seen a pattern. You know, basically God is displeased 
with Israel, with his people, for two, for two sins, two, two main sins. The first is idolatry, and then the second is injustice, right? For those of you who have been in the adult Sunday school, when we've gone through the minor prophets, <clears throat> that's pretty much the theme, you know, either idolatry or injustice to God's people. That, those are the major complaints God has against Israel and Judah. Chapter 57 in Isaiah kind of handles the idolatry part. So if you go back later this afternoon, read chapter 57, you'll see that deals with the problem of idolatry. This chapter is dealing with the problem of injustice, or if you want to put it another way, chapter 57 is the first tablet violations. This chapter is the second tablet violations. These are violations done to each other, to you and I, uh, amongst each other, you know, Lying, destruction, evil, innocent blood, you know, that's the result of our sin. That's the result of being separated from God. So what, what's the response on God's part then? Okay, so that's the effect. That's the effect that it has on us as we live down here in a fallen world, separated from God, with a barrier between us. What's God's response? Well, God is angry. God hates sin. Not just, you know, God just doesn't hate the sins out in California, you know, out in San Francisco. God hates our sins, too, folks. He hates my sin. He hates your sin. He hates, he hates sin. So God is angry. He's angry at the wicked every day. And he's angry because this is his world. This is his creation. God created. And what did God create? What did God pronounce at the end of creation? That it was good. God created in six days and said it was good. We have defiled that goodness. We have, we have brought uh, shame to God's world. So God is angry. God, God, God is angry. So the effect of our sin, the effect of this war, is God's anger. Right? Now, if you're going to war, <laughs> you better make sure you've got the power to win the war. Well, if we're going to war with God... And God is angry, um, and God is going to do something about that anger. Well, I think I would put my money on God more so than our weapons, right? So, uh, so we're at war. We're separated from God with an impenetrable barrier that's the same as the separation that's done between light and darkness, heaven and earth, water and dry land, holy and unholy. That kind of separation is separating us from God right now. So what are we going to do about it? Well, now we get to the pursuit of peace. So we're at war. We need peace. How are we going to pursue that peace? Verses 8 through 15, we're going to talk about a few ways that we're going to pursue peace. The way of peace, verse 8, the way of peace they do not know, and there's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. 
For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who debars from evil makes himself a prey. All right, so we are trying to pursue peace because we are at war with God. Now, there are two times we could have had peace with God without having to go through this, right? Two times. The first time was in the garden. Adam could have had peace with God um, if he had kept his end of the covenant of works or um, the covenant of creation, however you want to classify that. If, if Adam had, had, had kept the stipulations of that covenant, Adam would have been at peace with God. The assumption is he would have been able to eat from the tree of life, therefore have eternal life, if he had kept the covenant uh, stipulations. We all know what happened. He didn't. So ever since then, we've been at war with God. Now, there was one other time that possibly there could have been peace, at least a temporal peace with God. And that would have been when God called them to occupy the land. If you remember what happened, you know, God said, I'm giving you this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. All you have to do is go in, possess the land, and totally drive out the people of the land because they are wicked, they are idolatrous, they are evil, don't have anything to do with them. Drive them, wipe them out completely. It's a hard, it's a hard thing in a sense, you know, women, children, animals, everything. Wipe them out, enter the land. That would have been a temporal peace. <laughs> um, because of the sinful nature of man, I'm sure it wouldn't have lasted. But at least temporarily, they may have known the degree of peace with God if they had done what God had commanded them in driving out all of uh, all of the inhabitants of the land that God was giving them. But apart from those two issues, we are continually at war with God, trying to find peace. And we may attempt it. We may attempt to bring about justice and hope to save ourselves. Um, But ultimately, it's a futile attempt. It's continually groping, as verse 10 says. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 28 through 29 says this. So Deuteronomy chapter 28 The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall, only be, you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. And there shall be no one to help you. Or Job in chapter 5 puts it this way. Job chapter 5 verses 12 through 14. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the light. All right. So our attempts to bring about justice, to bring about peace, are like, <laughs> it's like being in a maze, you know. Think of, think, of, think of this huge maze, and we're allowed to enter into the maze 
But there's only one door in. There's, there, there's not a corresponding way out of this maze. And we're let into the maze, and then the door behind us is closed permanently. <laughs> so we're stuck in this maze. We cannot get out. Any attempt that we have to bring about peace with God, apart from something supernatural, is us groping, is us walking through this maze, trying to find a way out, and having no hope of finding a way out. And not only is there no hope of a way out, you know, looking to each side, ahead of us, to the left of us, to the right of us, all the way around, to the back of us, there's no hope of getting out. And if you look up, there's no hope of getting out. Because remember, we've got an impenetrable barrier above us, between us and God. So there is no way out of this maze. But we try. We try. We grope. And we try in three ways. We try in a sensual sense. We try to find peace in a sensual sense. We try to find peace in a moral sense. And we try to find peace in a religious sense. All right, so sensual, moral, and religious so how do we try to find peace in a sensual sense? Well, we see it more and more in our day. Um, this is the old, you know, eat and drink for tomorrow we die mentality. We're going to find peace in and with ourselves. We don't care about having peace with God. God doesn't exist, they say. They don't care. They, all they care about is, as long as, you know, kind of like Hezekiah, you know, as long as there's peace in my time. As long as they have peace with themselves, they're fine. They're happy, eating, drinking, going about what they want to do. It's all about having peace with themselves. What is that? That's groping. They're, they're, they're groping, groping in the dark, trying to find a way out through what they think is peace with themselves. Morally, sort of the next level up. Okay, a central peace is peace with yourself. A moral peace would be peace with each other. Okay, peace with each other. So we can we can kind of bring about we we can put an end to injustice amongst ourselves, right? We we see that big time today. The whole social social justice movement. You know, as long as as long as we bring about justice for everybody, then we are good. Look at what good we've done by bringing justice for everybody. We can bring justice, we can bring peace with each other through justice. Well, what's the problem with that? <laughs> the problem with that is who determines, you know, what's moral? Who determines what is good? What is just? What is right? Um, more and more, we're, 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 we're seeing the, the, the fruits and effects of that. So, so, so we grow. We grow. Oh, well, you know, as long as everybody treats everybody fairly and recognize, you know, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. And we're all going to be at peace. We're still groping. We're still groping, trying to find a way out of the maze. Or... We can do it through a religious sense. Okay, we think we can make peace with God, right? 
So we have a, a central sense, peace with yourself, and you're happy with that. Or we have a moral peace, peace with each other. Or we could have a religious kind of peace that we think we have peace with God. You know, but it's kind of peace with God on our terms. You know, God, look how, look how, look how holy and righteous and just I am. I come to church twice on Sunday. I go to Wednesday evening prayer meeting. You know, I tithe. I help little old ladies across the street. You know, whatever. We're, it's through our works, we think we can bring about peace with God. But that's not going to cut it either. We're still, still groping. We're still groping. So either sensual, moral, or religious, it's all groping after peace with God. That in trying to remove that barrier above us. We think we can do this. We think we can do this. But what's the end of what's the end of our groping? What's the end of our groping? Those three ways of groping. Isaiah forty eight twenty two and fifty seven twenty one. Isaiah says it twice. There is no peace. For the wicked. You can grope all you want. You can search all you want. You're not going to find peace. You're not going to find peace with God. Isaiah 42:22 says this. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue. Okay, they are all trapped in holes, hidden in prisons, none to rescue. That's us groping. Still groping. None to rescue us. Romans chapter 3, verses 11 through 17 puts it this way. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. It's the way of peace they have not known. The way of peace we have not known in our fallen state. While we're in that maze, groping, trying to find a way out, trying to find peace with God, we don't know the way of peace. We can't know the way of peace. It's not shown to us. And we can't bring about it on our own effort. God's law, God's law, is the standard of justice. We can try. We can. You can try all the social justice things you want to do, but the standard of justice is God and God's law. We can try a religious reformation thing. We can say, "Oh, if only, if only we get the right person appointed to the Supreme Court. If only we get the right person elected." Then we will know peace and we will know justice. It, folks, it doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter if it's left, right, center. It, the politician doesn't matter because none of them in my lifetime, I've never seen one who has the perfect standard of justice according to God's law and who would be willing to stand up for it. None. Zero. Don't even, I mean, yes, we should try and elect people. Um, who are who, in a sense, are righteous, who seek after God. Yes, we should do everything we, we can to elect those who acknowledge God. But don't put your don't put your trust in there. That's not the way to peace. That's not the way to peace. That just brings more legislation, less liberty. 
all that stuff. I mean, the only person I know that I would feel confident in would be is uh, if Tanner were appointed the next Supreme Court justice. I might be comfortable with that. But then again, I don't think Tanner would survive the confirmation process. <laughs> so don't, you know, that's not the way to peace. Without truth, without truth, there is no justice. God's law is a standard of justice. And without the truth, there can be no justice. In fact, as we read, it's not even safe to be righteous anymore. God in that time is saying it's not safe to be righteous. How much more are we seeing that in our day? It's not safe to be righteous, even if you wanted to be righteous. It's not safe. It's going to get worse. I, I, you know, I pray for my children and grandchildren, but it's, it, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, so it's not even safe to be righteous. Righteousness alone brings about peace, but you can't. We don't have perfect righteousness in our sinful nature, and even if we had a semblance of it, we would be ostracized for it. We would be cut off for it in in, in the broader culture. So. In, that, in, in our maze, in our groping, in our struggling, trying to find a way to peace, there is no way, there is no truth, there is no life. Yes, John, John chapter 14, there is no way, there is no truth, there is no life, and therefore there is no peace. All right, so the end of our groping is no peace. All right, let's talk about a permanent peace then, one that, it, one that we can See one that can be achieved and wrought. So verses 15b to 21. Here's the good news, folks. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Okay, so we have a problem. We're at war with God. There's a barrier between us and God. We cannot know peace. We cannot judge rightly. We cannot bring about justice uh, without peace. So what does God do? The Lord saw it. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him. So God said, all right, man, if you won't judge rightly, this is the whole minor prophets again, accusing them of treating each other unjustly. If you won't judge rightly, I'm going to do it. I'm going to step in and intervene and bring about a perfect divine justice. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5 says this, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you 
and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So we have this breaking in of divine justice. Not because of our righteousness or our uprightness. It's because God is clearing the land out. God is clearing out all the injustice, all the evil, wickedness, all the deceit, all the lying, all the blood shed. God is going to intervene and break in. A breaking in of justice in this case. There will be a second breaking in. And that second breaking in is going to be in judgment. All right, so here we have a breaking in of God to bring about justice. The incarnation of Christ. Bringing about divine justice. There will be a second breaking in of Christ. In his divine power and glory in judgment. So this is the first breaking in of God beginning to crack that barrier, to put a hole in that barrier and coming in, intervening with his justice. And look at the language of verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Reminds you of Ephesians 6, right? Putting on all that armor of God. Well, normally when we talk about Ephesians 6, we think of it, or at least I do, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I always kind of thought of it as a defensive posture. Now put on all this stuff because the world and the devil and sin are fighting against you, so put this stuff on to defend yourself. Not here. God is putting this stuff on as offensive weapons. He is saying uh, the garments of vengeance for clothing, wrapping himself in, his, in zeal as a cloak. God is coming for, for battle. You know, this is, we're, we're at war. Well, you know, here, here, comes, here, here comes the most powerful weapon in the war. God is coming in and breaking in with his divine justice. He's putting on his armor as an offensive weapon. And there's nothing that can be done about it. Verse 8 was the way to find peace and and the futility of trying to find that peace. Verse 8 said, The way of the peace they do not know. And there's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. So the attempt to find peace in verse 8 is futile. It can't happen. Verse 19 says it's futile to try and disrupt the peace. Right? So verse 8 says, futile trying to find it, but once we have it, it's futile trying to, to, to oppose it. Verse 19 says, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. God is coming in this huge stream of torrent poured out with his justice and none can oppose it. So the futile of trying to find it in verse 8 and the futile of trying to prevent it in verse 19. And what is the basis of this divine peace? Children, you know, you know the name of our church, right? Covenant. I wasn't here when whoever started the church, Miss um, Dodds, uh, the Schmitz, um, I'm sure they wrangled over the name of the church. I'm glad they chose Covenant because that's a great name. Um, But what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is an agreement between 
two parties or between one party and somebody else, but it's an agreement. And uh, there are terms to the agreement. So kids, like, you know, let's say your parents covenant with you to say, if you'll clean your room once a week, I'll give you $1,000 every week. I'm going to covenant with you that if you clean your room once a week, I'll give you $1,000. And you say, hey, what a, what a great deal. I'm, I'll, I'll agree to that covenant. But what happens when the first week you don't clean your room? I know you wouldn't do that, but let's say it just, just happened that you didn't clean your room one week. Well, wouldn't it be great if your parents went ahead and paid you anyways? Well, that's kind of the covenant that God has made with us. We agreed to the covenant, but we, 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 we can't keep our end of the bargain. So God keeps our end of the bargain for us. So that, that's a covenant. And that's called the covenant of grace. Now, under the, under the covenant of grace, there are various, I don't want to necessarily use this word, but I can't think of a better way, dispensations of that grace. You know, you've got the covenant with Moses, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. You've got the covenant with Abraham. You've got the covenant with David. There's a little known covenant that we're uncovering right here, and that's the covenant of peace. Covenant of peace. Um, the covenant was promised. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 24 through 26. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. Or Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Or, more pointedly, just a few chapters back, in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 8 through 10, which I think the covenant referenced here in in chapter 59 is a reference to the covenant mentioned in chapter 54, Verses 8 through 10. So Isaiah 54, 8 through 10. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. All right. So little known covenant that we don't really talk about a whole lot, but there is a covenant of peace that's under the covenant of grace. That covenant of peace is God's divine justice coming in, allowing us to have peace with him, removing that barrier that impenetrable barrier that it was above us because of our sin, God is going to remove through the covenant of peace. And it's at least as firm as the covenant of preservation with Noah. If you do covenant studies, the one with Noah is commonly referred to as the covenant of preservation because God promised never again to destroy the earth by flood and he gave him the rainbow as, as the sign of that. So that's 
commonly referred to as the covenant of preservation. God's preserving the earth. He's not going to destroy it again by water. <laughs> we'll see a little bit how he's going to destroy it. Um, so it's at least as firm as the covenant with Noah. He says in verse 9, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. I'm making that same oath, promise, swearing to you with this covenant of peace. So it's at least as firm and binding as the covenant with Noah. But it's more firm than the covenant of creation. It's more firm than the covenant of creation. Why? Because it says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed. This is verse 10, chapter 54. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So what's he saying? The mountains may go away, the hills may go away, but my covenant of peace will not go away. Well, the covenant of creation, you know, we talked about preservation with Noah, not going to do it through, through flooding the earth. God didn't promise not to destroy the earth again. He is going to destroy his creation. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 4-7. through seven, They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So this covenant of peace is even more firm than the covenant of creation. Covenant of creation, there is an end. God's going to destroy the earth through fire of judgment. And he said, even though the hills be removed and all that stuff, I'm not going to remove my covenant of peace. So the covenant of peace even outlasts the covenant of creation. All right, so we have the covenant then fulfilled. Psalm 85, verses 8 through 11. This is why I wanted to sing this. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. All right. Righteousness and peace kiss. Righteousness and peace kiss. We were down here groping, trying to find righteousness. We couldn't do it. We couldn't find justice. God had to intervene. And by God's intervention, now that righteousness that we're looking for and the peace from above have kissed and meet. How faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Or Isaiah chapter 42 verse 16. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. The paths that they have not known I will guide them. 
I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. I do not forsake them. So God has given us peace through the chastisement of the punishment of his son. And he's leading us through that maze so we no longer have to grope our way through it. God's going to lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. He's going to guide them. He's going to turn the lights on in the maze, turn darkness into light. And that's going to be done eternally. The spirit and word cannot be quenched or suppressed. That is verse 21. Um, God's word and God's spirit will not be removed from our mouths or the mouths of our children or the mouths of our grandchildren. It's a covenant fulfilled. It's a covenant maintained. It's a firm covenant even past the covenant of creation. It will last through our children, our children's children. They will know the word of God. Their spirit will not depart from them in God's covenant relationship. Isaiah 28, closing closing verse. Isaiah 28, verse 6. Isaiah 28, verses 16 through 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through you, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through it, as often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. So here's the application of this message, kids. Which side, which side of that barrier do you want to be on? Do you want to be down here continually groping, 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 no light, no way out, trying to find peace? Or do you want to be led by the one who is peace, the one who will give you light, the one who will direct your steps, the one who will lead your way through this maze, through this path, through believing in Christ? Christ was chastised. For our transgressions, Christ was suffered on the cross for us so that we can have peace. We can have that peace of God. We can enter into that covenant of peace. If you do not lay hold of Christ, you're outside of that covenant. Covenant, You're outside of knowing peace. You're going to be left in that maze. You're going to be no way out to the sides, no way out to the front, the back, above, no way out continually. And it's going to be painful. But by faith in Christ, believe in Christ, he'll show you the way. He'll lead you through the maze. He will give you an eternal peace. Let's pray.